Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. We need, we need to get our students as loud as these students. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're looking at two verses. So you can start turning there, but first, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, the psalmist says that the unfolding of your word gives light. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would so unfold your word to us that we might behold the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold it, may we be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. So two verses, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. These are perhaps an unusual uh, couple of verses to talk about uh, in thinking about men and women and how we relate to one another. But what I want to suggest to you this morning that they have a lot of wisdom, I think in some ways some untapped wisdom that can help us as we think about how we relate to one another in the family, in the church, and in the world. So, we're going to have that talk, okay? The talk. Okay, not that talk, but we are going to talk about our sexed natures as men and women, and what are the implications of that for how we relate to one another. As you know, there's a lot of confusion out in the world today on the topics of sex and gender and, and what that means for the ways we relate to each other. There's some who say, it doesn't have any bearing on how we relate to one another, right? Same folks who would say we should be blind to differences of color, say we should be blind to differences of sex. But as we have seen, as we've sort of tried to experiment in that way, it doesn't really work. And oftentimes what happens is one sex becomes the norm or the standard that the other sex then tries to live up to, whether you're talking of kind of old school feminism, where women's equality means be more like men, or what is sometimes known as long housing, where men are told you need to be more like moral, respectable women. Shape up, boys. Beyond that view, there's the idea that our sexual differences are just social convention, mere social convention and, and, and oppressive, even violent social conventions at that. Philosopher Judith Butler describes the thing that happens when the newborn baby is born in the hospital and the doctor or nurse says, it's a girl or it's a boy. She says, this is an act of violence. You're girling this child by putting that label on her, and therefore, what we must do is try to free ourselves 
liberate ourselves of these oppressive social and cultural conventions. Even among those who view sex as not something that just ignore or as something that's purely a culturally relative thing, a culturally oppressive thing, even among those who view sex as having God-given reality, there's still differences of opinion of what that means. Go back to the ancient world, Aristophanes and Plato's Symposium talks about the original human beings neither being male nor female, but this round circle kind of hermaphroditic thing that somehow as a result of the judgment of the gods were separated so that all of us are really kind of half human beings. And we're always on the lookout for our perfect soulmate who can complete me. So, so do we view the other sex as someone who completes me? I need you. I can't be a fully human person without you. And you can't be a fully human person without me. Or do we view the opposite sex as someone who doesn't complete me, but someone who's in competition with me? You know, there's no room for kin in Barbie's world. And there's no room for Barbie and Ken's either, if you've seen the movie, right? It's a zero-sum game, right? One sex has to prevail. This is not a team sport. Well, as Christians, we seek guidance on this issue, where we seek guidance for all issues in the Word of God and what it teaches us about God and about God's works and creation and redemption and consummation, how God's design for our sexuality should guide the way we relate to one another. You remember what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, from the beginning, God made them male and female. And the promise of Christian teaching is that in discovering God's design for human beings as male and female, a design that we have thwarted and distorted through sin but that Christ came to redeem and that the Spirit is renewing in us, we can find what it lives to live full and whole lives as men and women to the glory of God. And yet again, even among those who believe these things, there's still confusion that persists. And I'll say more about this tonight. If you want to hear more about this tonight, please do join us. But one of the things that I think has really sort of captivated the conservative reformed and evangelical mind for the past several decades is a, a kind of right conviction about looking to God's design and creation for men and women and, and the belief that Christ came to redeem that design, that the Spirit is renewing that design, but looking at only really one aspect of that design, specifically the relationship between husbands and wives, and then there, looking at only one feature of that relationship, how Paul describes, for example, the relationship between husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, where husbands are the head and wives are called to submit. And, 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 and what has happened in, in many of our circles, we've taken that true and good teaching, but we've used that as the exclusive lens through which to try to interpret everything about the way we relate to men and women, and I think this is short-sighted in some ways. It creates problems for even interpreting certain passages. Think of the way Deborah relates to Barak in the book of Judges. 
It creates other kinds of conundrums, which one popular preacher reflected on a few years back. What happens if a man gets pulled over by a female police officer? Can he submit to her authority? Well, if your only perspective is husband and wife and headship and submission in marriage, then you create for yourselves these kinds of conundrums. What I want to suggest to you is that the Bible in general, and this passage in particular, shows us a, 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 a broader, a fuller, a more wonderful perspective for how we relate to one another as men and women. Well, I want to unfold this briefly, looking at two topics from this passage. First, the household paradigm on which Paul builds his argument. And then second, the household piety which Paul commends. The household paradigm on which Paul builds his argument, and then the household piety which Paul commends. So first, the household paradigm. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul is speaking to Timothy. Timothy is in a position of ecclesiastical authority in the church. Paul has just three chapters earlier said that that position that Timothy holds is due to creation design reserved for men only. That reflects the order of creation. But now he's telling Timothy, you as a pastor, you as an elder, you as a bishop, how are you going to relate to men and women in the church? And, and look, at, look at the options that he gives. Do not strike, it's literally what he says, don't punch in the face, but it's metaphorical here. When you're correcting men and women in your ministry, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, let's think about this. We, we know what fathers and mothers are, right? You better, they're paying your tuition, right? You know what brothers and sisters are, right? Yes, we do. We love our brothers and sisters. But th think about the, the image that Paul is referring to here. What is missing in this household in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2? Husband and wife. Think about this. Don't relate to men and women in the church as husbands and wives. You relate to them as fathers and mothers brothers and sisters, and by implication, as a son or a daughter. What is going on here? Well, as I said, it's not that Paul denies that there's a kind of domestic order that obtains in the relationship between husbands and wives. He affirms this in Ephesians chapter 5. It's not that Paul denies that that created order has some implication for ecclesiastical ministry. He makes one of the most extensive arguments for this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the very book we're in. It's not that Paul thinks that relationship between husband and wives is merely a passing kind of cultural fad or anomaly that perhaps we're going to grow out of one day, because in Ephesians chapter 5, he also says that relationship describes the relationship between Christ and the church, and that relationship's going to endure forever. So it can't be that he doesn't think that's a good thing. So what's going on? Why no mention of husbands and wives and talking about the general way we relate to each other as men and women in the church? Well, 
It's because Paul's understanding of the household is bigger than the relationship between husbands and wives. Remember I described Aristophanes' view earlier, you complete me. I'm half a person, you're half a person, only when we come together, right, do we add up to one whole. Or, or the Barbie and Ken view, it's, it's numero uno, only one winner. Either I win or you win. Either men are on top or women are on top, right? But this is not Paul's view. In biblical math, you think of a husband and a wife, one plus one equals three, and four, and five, and if you're in the Swain family, six. We have four children. And so in the household as God designed it, you've got husbands and wives, and then comes baby girl, and husbands and wives become what? Fathers and mothers, and baby girl becomes daughter, and then another baby girl comes along, and, and what is she? She's a daughter, and she's a sister, and then brothers, and so forth and so forth. You see, in Paul's understanding, while the marriage relationship is foundational to the household, that relationship is ordered toward a fruitfulness that brings other men and women, boys and girls, into the world and creates with it a host of other household relations. Okay, okay, so we got that. Husbands and wives, that's not the only relation in the household that matters. It's good, we affirm it. It has some profound implications for a lot of areas of life. But when Paul tells Timothy, again, the person in spiritual authority in the church, how you relate to men and women, that's not the one he brings up. He brings up these other relations. Treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. What's going on? Why? Well, the clue, I think, is in the last phrase and how he describes how Timothy is to relate to younger women. In all purity, what is going on? Why does Paul leave out husbands and wives as a paradigm for how we relate to one another as men and women in general? Christopher Ashe, in his wonderful book, Sex in the Service of God, suggests that Leviticus 18 is the background for this passage. Now, go check out Leviticus 18 later on, but most of the chapter is all about who you're not allowed to have sex with, and it talks about your mother-in-law and your sister and your brother and your aunt, and all of these people are people that in Israel you're not to have sex with. What's going on? Well, unlike, again, most of our families, which we probably grew up in a, a household with a nuclear family or whatever, in the ancient world and still in many parts of the world, a, a household would have included an extended family with multiple generations, grandparents, children, their children, aunts, uncles. Why these restrictions? Why these taboos? On, on who can be your sexual partner. It's not just trying to kind of prohibit sexual promiscuity. It's not just trying to prohibit marriage. You know what it's trying to do? Christopher Ash says, the point of these laws is to protect the forms of non-sexual intimacy 
that are supposed to exist in the household, right? An aunt is supposed to be able to move around the household not worrying that the son-in-law is viewing her as a sexual prize. A child is supposed to be able to move around in the household not worried that parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts are are, are viewing her or him as the, the sexual prize, as sexual predators. The household is supposed to be a safe space for family intimacy, family love. And we know how we're supposed to treat each other in the family. It's right there at the heart of the Ten Commandments. What does Moses say? Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Cultivate those kinds of relationships, those relationships of pure affection, pure love, pure honor. There are other kinds of relations in the household than the relationship of a husband and wife. And we've got to learn, Paul says, how to live in those relationships outside of the family, in the church, and in the world. You see, in the ancient world, and even today, we often see this in the business world, positions of authority are often viewed as positions of sexual privilege. Because I'm in charge around here, I have the right to ask things of you that you might not normally want to give me. And what Paul is saying is, not in the church, not in the church. And he's telling Timothy, the person in spiritual authority, that's not how we're going to relate to each other. We're going to relate to one another as fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, and all purity. Well, if that's the household paradigm on which Paul builds, a paradigm that is bigger than just the relationship of husbands and wives, but includes the relationships of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and everything else, what then is the household piety that Paul commends? And again, talk more about this this afternoon at 5.30. But what Paul commends to Timothy is what is called a virtue ethics. In virtue ethics, reality, rather than my own subjective desires, my own subjective inclinations, my own subjective opinions about the world, reality is what creates moral obligations. Virtue then in this world consists in living in a way in which we fulfill those obligations with excellence. Reality creates moral obligations. Virtue is moral excellence in fulfilling those obligations. The poet Wendell Berry in his poem, The Law That Marries All Things, says the rain is only free in falling. The rain's not free in doing what birds do, flying in the sky. The rain is not free when it does what other creatures do, right? The rain is free when it does what it was made to do. And it sings in its descent, Barry says. Well, that's true of us as well. True freedom and flourishing lies in living in the way we were made to live. And this is the, the conception of virtue that Paul has in mind here. Now, here's the thing. What this means is my neighbor's sexuality, reality, creates an obligation on me. And what Paul is telling Timothy 
even beyond kind of the ecclesiastical office, even beyond other kinds of office, the fact that an older woman is an older woman obliges Timothy to treat her with a kind of honor, a kind of respect, the kind of honor that a child owes a mother. The fact that a person is a younger woman obliges Timothy to treat her with a certain kind of honor and respect that one would owe a sister and to treat her with all purity. And that goes for all the relations we have with men and women. But note here one other thing about Paul's ethics. This virtue ethics is a virtue ethic of a very certain sort. One thing is when you look at the, the way that our culture thinks about sex, whether they view it as a real thing or a cultural construct, one thing that really predominates in the way that our culture thinks about sex today is sex is a matter of me asserting my rights. Me telling you how I want you to look at me. Me telling you what I want you to call me, right? And, and my job is always to be listening out for what someone is telling me about themselves. Well, Paul assumes a, a really completely different perspective. He, he assumes the perspective of Genesis 2, which is the way we relate to each other is based on recognizing what God has made them to be. Remember when Adam names the animals? What happens? God brings them before him and he looks at them and what does he do? He gives them a name that corresponds to what they are. And then when he finds there's no helper for him, God puts Adam to sleep, takes the rib, he creates Eve, and then he sees Eve and what does he say? Behold at last. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, she shall be called woman for she's taken out of man. And so, Paul's ethics is an ethics, not of self-assertion, but of recognition, seeing the world as God made it to be, seeing my neighbor as God made them to be. But there's something else in, in, in Paul's virtue ethics that really distinguishes it from all other virtue ethics in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the thing about virtue was that it was always a competition. I can acquire virtue through the family that I'm born in, reputation. I can acquire things through the money I spend. I can acquire uh, reputation and fame through the, the great feats that I perform. And, and oftentimes, it's a competition where for me to win is for you to lose. In fact, the best way to win is at the expense of your competitors. Well, it's interesting when you look at Paul, you see this in Romans chapter 12, you see this in the book of Galatians and other places. Paul, Paul's Christian response to this kind of virtue competition in the ancient world is not to say, quit competing. Sometimes we kind of think that's, oh, just kind of chill, dudes. That's not what he says. He says, I actually want you competing, but I don't want you competing to acquire honor at another's expense. I want you to outdo one another in showing honor. Compete with one another to bestow honor, because that is what Christ has done for you. He gave Himself that those who had forsaken all rights in God's kingdom might receive the full rights of sons and daughters of the living God. 
And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, and this is what Paul is telling us. You know what our attitude should be towards the opposite sex? To find out how to honor them as the people God made them to be. And even in Timothy's case, who's in a position of ecclesiastical authority, you know what that means? There are going to be some men in his life that he is going to defer to, and he's going to honor, and he's going to respect. And there are going to be some women in his life, and Paul mentions in, first Tim, in, in Second Timothy who some of those women are, his mother and his grandmother, and he's going to defer to them, and he's going to honor them. And he is not going to be fulfilling his position and calling as a pastor in the church if he doesn't reflect that order of creation. And so, there may be no place for Barbie in Ken's world, there may be no place for Ken in Barbie's world, but this is God's world. And in God's world, the other sex doesn't complete me, the other sex is not in competition with me, but the other sex is a complement to me, and together, as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, we are called to serve the kingdom of God for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you teach us, and we pray that the things you teach us, you would plant in our hearts by your Spirit through the power of your Son, our elder brother and Lord, Jesus Christ. Renew in us your design. Renew in this community your design, that together with one voice we may glorify you, our God and Father, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.